I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upsound, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upsound it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny, an urban planner with Gould Evans in Kansas City, and I am joined today by our regular co-host, Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Welcome back. It's been a little bit of, well, it's probably been several weeks now uh, since we've actually recorded together. <laughs> I feel bad about being like the regular co-host because I've not been very, I've been regularly absent uh, lately. Yeah, but. you're going to be demoted because of yes, this. Yes, <laughs> no, I probably deserve to be demoted. And it, the sad thing is, I was thinking about this last night, the, the one time that we had together, I screwed up the tech. I, like, like I triple screwed up the tech and people did not get a pocket. Cause I, first of all, I forgot the podcast gear when we were together in CMU. Oh, yeah. And then I ordered some like emergency podcast gear. And when that came, the memory card was too big for the thing and it didn't work like too big uh, in terms of the gigabytes. Um, and then we just agreed to do it on our phone and I didn't press save evidently at the end and I lost. So we lost an episode that was really good because I screwed up three times on technology. I think <laughs> I felt like that's like the Chernobyl disaster where it was never like one thing goes wrong, but like a bunch of things sequentially go wrong. So we had our own little Chernobyl Exactly. And for anybody who is not at CNU, we actually did a live podcast in front of an audience that everybody who listens to this show is supposed to be able to hear. And yes, Chuck yeah. messed up the, the I screwed technology. Up. <laughs> <sighs> it was very <Yes>. exclusive, <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> More exclusive than anticipated. I feel bad because, you know, Kevin Klinkenberg, who set this up, did a great job of running the whole thing and, and setting up time for us to do this. And and I was thinking, oh, yeah, this would be really great. And then and then I blew it not once, not twice, three times. I blew three it, times. So. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Kevin. <laughs> yeah. You know, for Strong Towns, I've been on the road for six of the last seven weeks. And the seventh week in that was family vacation. So I have actually been traveling a ton. So I am meeting the team here at Strong Towns again. I'm reintroducing myself to you, reintroducing myself to the audience. Like, hey, remember me? I was two months ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've got actually a completely different direction with Upzoned. We just talk about aliens now. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> no, it's okay. all aliens all the time. Well, I'll be I'll jump right in then. That'll be perfect. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> well, <laughs> Yeah, I hope you're okay with the redirection. We didn't want to ask you. Okay, so let's jump into the article. Sorry, it's not actually about aliens. It is related to strong towns. Uh, so the article we're going to be talking about is entitled The Problem with Building a New City from Scratch. It is published in Bloomberg City Lab by Nolan Gray. As we all know, the housing market is really heating up, especially in major front row cities. And this is leaving some observers to ask, why don't we just build new cities? Pointing to examples like in China, where new cities are built seemingly on demand. 
Uh, the author digs into why this is not a realistic solution to the housing crisis in the U.S., engaging uh, a fellow named Elaine Berto, who is a fellow at the Marin Institute for Urban Management and former city planner at the World Bank. Uh, his main points in response to this is that fundamentally, cities need both good infrastructure and jobs to really work. And historically, infrastructure follows the market, not the other way around. So in his assessment, this makes the idea of building a city from scratch, which is to make you know huge public investments in infrastructure where no jobs actually are, not really a very smart investment because of the upfront costs of building an entire city's worth of infrastructure being so incredibly high and the public sector would have to be in the uh, negative cash flow for a very long time. So the flip side of this is described as really the rapidly growing region of Western North Dakota, where job opportunities are actually attracting a surge of new residents and settlements even though a full-service city has yet to be established. In this approach, you know, where migration patterns prompted by economic opportunity led to modest settlements and eventually full-fledged cities is more reflective of kind of the American tradition and the traditional settlement pattern. But now we have so many established cities and a handful of cities with extremely high demand I guess the question is, should public investments be proactively utilized to build new cities from scratch? And maybe I'll just ask you, Chuck, I mean, what what was your thought when reading this article? Obviously, this idea of just building a new city from scratch um, is kind of, to me, like a silly idea. But I think that there is something, something to kind of perhaps building on existing cities or thinking up existing cities that maybe makes more sense. Well, yeah, I, I think the idea in and of itself, especially when it's paired with the housing, pro, you know, pro affordability problem we're having right now and housing shortfalls and housing crisis, when those two things are paired together, it's an absurdity. I mean, the idea that somehow there's less friction in going out and building a brand new city than there is in, you know, just building more housing in existing I'm going to say emaciated, you know, underutilized, unproductive cities. I mean, cities that are begging for additional investment, really. Uh, The idea that we would somehow not do that, but it would be like less friction. That that says something more about our culture and our society and our regulatory approach than it does anything about economics or what makes sense or or what, you know, historically has has happened. I think the the interesting thing, though, to me as I was reading this article is is I started to think about instances where this had been done. I mean, every metropolitan area is surrounded by new cities, right? Every major metro area is surrounded by what, in a sense, are new cities, and they're new cities that were built. You said, you know, government basically fronting the cost for the infrastructure. That was how these cities were all built. Um, the government fronting the cost of the infrastructure or the government subsidizing individuals through mortgages and commercial real estate loans to subsidize the upfront cost of the infrastructure. So, you know, all of those like second ring, third ring, exurban areas, uh, even the first ring suburbs to a degree 
we're all built under this model. And what we see is that that model does not work. It doesn't work financially. And maybe we can just limit ourselves to that. I mean, as, a, as an investment, they provide housing quickly. They provide it in a way that I think we could have all kinds of conversations about climate and environmental impacts and justice and, and what have you. But if we just narrowly look at the finances, they fail in every financial metric that is longer than the immediate sugar high you get of the transaction. And so, you know, how would something we build be different than what we've built the last 80 years? And I, I think what is kind of suggested is that, well, if we went and tried to build like a new New York City where we had, you know, massive amounts of investment in one place and really high density and we were going to build like, you know, Brasilia, which was brought up in the article as being a failure for many reasons. If we were going to go out and do that, maybe then we could at scale build something that could have an impact on housing affordability. I find like just the practicality of that to be kind of absurd when you have a city like Detroit that would love to become New York and has all the investment already in place, you know, a city like Memphis that, you know, is, is a great place and has all this stuff there that's already in the ground and just needs some love. I, I don't, it's really bizarre to me to say, well, the easiest thing to do would be to continue to abandon those other places, continue to let Akron fail and, and, you know, this long list of places fail, continue to let the bulk of Kansas City's neighborhoods struggle, right? While we go out to what? Central California and build a million person city or a 5 million person city? Like, I, it just seems like a, a exercise in stupidity. Well, and I think to Berto's point, it's like, why would you build a brand new city from scratch if there's nothing that's really driving that to be built in terms of jobs locally, which, um, you know, I know, you know, we, we can argue about whether or not, uh, you know, infrastructure follows the market or if the market follows infrastructure, it's probably a little bit of both. But, you know, this idea that you would just kind of, you know, this absurdity that you would build, you know, a full-fledged city from scratch and that would be in the black for a very long time. While, by the way, like every- In the red a very long time. In the red, yeah, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, by the way, every city, you know, is is in the in the red. So that that to me is an absurdity because really what we need to be focusing on is, is really helping to make existing cities stronger and not necessarily trying to like recreate the wheel, you know, because yeah, we have places like Detroit or Buffalo or Memphis, even Kansas City, which are, you know, not front row cities, but could could really benefit from actually having more opportunities in these places. And there's an endless number of smaller towns throughout the country that have historic productive or could be productive downtown areas on a grid. And they just never graduated to become a big city. And, you know, perhaps shifts in remote working and shifts in where employers are located could could enable these places to see their own booms. Right. I think today, more than any other time in history, you could go out in the desert and essentially start a city and not have any uh, natural resource or economic base or what have you and, and make it work because of the fact that remote work and we're, you know, I, it's funny. So that's like Burning Man, but but remote workers. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that would be actually really funny. <laughs> yeah. So I, this just occurred to me. I actually was asked, I wrote about this a little bit at the end of my first book. I was actually asked by a group of Hasidic Jews from Brooklyn to build a city for them in the state of Kansas. And this is this is not an, as absurd as it sounded. I mean, as I got into it with them, it ultimately didn't happen. And it didn't happen for a bunch of very practical reasons. But the idea of taking a group of you know, the Hasidim, who, who it would have been 5,000 in like the first migratory wave, another 5,000, and then built up to 50,000 within the course of a decade. We looked at like, I sat and studied the logistics of doing this. Like, how could you like economically make this work? And I studied older cities and how they had evolved from, from very small settlements up to very large settlements and came up with the idea that, that we could pull this off. But the reason it worked is because you basically, with the the Hasidic Jewish practices uh, in terms of their kosher meals and their Sabbath worship and their schools and like all the things that they did, created its own like economic energy where you didn't need to bring that much capital in and have that much capital leak out. You basically could create something that almost could be dropped anywhere and work because of the tightness nature of that community. I, I think when you look at other examples, and I was thinking about some new urbanist examples I've seen, because let's just put this on the table. I think every planner's dream when they're sitting in graduate school is to be like, I'm going to build a city someday. It's like, you know, all of us played SimCity. All of us think that we're geniuses and all of us think that we can do this better than anybody in the past has done. There's some notable like new urbanist examples where they actually have gone out and tried to do this. There's been a ton of books written about Celebration Florida. I happen to enjoy Celebration. I enjoy the architecture. I enjoy the layout of the city. I enjoy uh, you know a, a lot of things about it. But economically, without Disney, it would not have made any sense. It would not have worked. Disney took a huge loss uh, up front. Um, they eventually made that up, but they were, like you say, ran the red for a long, long time. And it was only the Disney brand and kind of cachet that allowed them to overinflate the value of those houses that allowed them to kind of dig out of the, the place they were in. I look at another new urbanist one like Carlton Landing. Exactly, which is remote. Yeah, which is very remote. But it functions like a tourist place, right? It's like a weekend getaway for people living in Tulsa and Oklahoma City and, and Dallas to come and stay in, uh, in, in Carlton Landing. What Carlton Landing has done that is fascinating to me is they incorporate it as their own city, not as a way to, you know, we're going to build our own utopia but to actually access the insanity of the municipal bond market. If you are a private developer building a development out in the middle of nowhere, you could get capital, but it's not easy. If you are a city, it doesn't matter if you're a stupidly run city or a great run city or like anything in between, you can get a ridiculously high bond rating and borrow a, a insane amounts of money to finance infrastructure investments, and the municipal bond market will just throw cash at you. And that's what they did. They, they incorporated and used that to basically have the municipality 
uh, finance all of the development costs for them. And I, they, they gave up some control, right? They gave up control over, because now you have a, a town council and other people who will make decisions. Um, so as a developer, you really have to have a tight community to make this work and a shared vision to make this work. Um, but it reminded me of kind of cities of old where, you know, people did have a, a shared vision and people were kind of forced to work together in ways that are more mechanical delivery system doesn't require now. Yeah, I'd be so curious to know what their like property tax approach is and and how that is intended to work in the long run. When I was at CNU, I, I was fascinated by some of the presentations on Carlton Landing um, and particularly the people who are building brick houses, like like real brick houses. That's just like fascinating to me. But, you know, Carlton Landing, uh, even places like Serenby, you know, these remote uh, new urbanist destinations are not the solution to the housing crisis, you know? They they won't scale. I mean, that's that's the whole thing. And I I think, you know, obviously Nolan is not – Nolan is answering a question that has been posed. You know, should we just build new cities? He's not advocating for this himself. Yeah. Because no one's smart, smart, you know, like (laughs) the, the idea that, okay, you look at like the West of the U S and how during this Westerward expansion of the original 13 colonies, you had a lot of small cities established that would, you know, over generations grow to be major places. And even the ones that grew really, really quickly, you know, you were growing from uh, 500 people to 5,000 people to 50,000 people to 100,000 people to half a million people. These are huge rates of growth. In a hundred years, in a century, you might go from 5,000 to you know 200,000. That's not going to scale. How many of those do we have to build to make a, a supply dent in in a housing affordability issue? An absurd number. A, a number that is just completely un, unrealistic when you put pencil to paper, right? Yeah. And the point, yes. And to the point of, um, you know, people live in a place for a reason, you know, there needs to be access to opportunities in a place. Some of these, these areas that, that are kind of more remote are, like you said, are really kind of more like weekend getaway spots. Um, and you know, are not necessarily at this point places where people are, are actually going, like looking for work, um, or, you know, opening a business, uh, you know, at, at large. So I think there is this consideration of, of what do you do when all of the, all of these people are going to a handful of cities for the opportunities that those cities provide. And because of the demand, it's become so unaffordable, um, I, I wonder if kind of this current reshuffling of society, you know, it seems like a lot of people are moving around. A lot of people are, you know, leaning into um, uh, remote work. A lot of companies are leaning into remote or hybrid work options for people. I, I kind of wonder if that in itself will help kind of decentralize that demand. Because to me, it seems like the fundamental problem here is that we need to decentralize job opportunities and economic opportunities for people. And the more those can be decentralized into, you know, back row cities and in place, you know, not a handful of large cities, the the less expensive the housing will be eventually. 
It's very interesting to me. We've we've had this debate internally here in many, many ways. And I'm not going to suggest that I, I know or understand the answer. In fact, I just had a conversation with someone today who's moving to the United States. And she and her husband are moving to New York City. And I said, oh, could I convince you to come to Brainerd? And I just got the like, you've got to be joking me, like not in a gazillion years would I consider that. And I get that. And, and that's part of my question to people has always been, uh, you know, why? Why? Um, there was an article that we debated here internally a, a few months ago where there was a guy who was living in a um, RV, like a, a crappy rundown RV. He was parking it at night under an interchange, like under an overpass in Brooklyn. And then selling insurance, like he was like using a phone to sell insurance. He was not like had an office or was going door to door. He just was like a remote worker selling insurance. And and the whole article was about this is what he had to do in order to find housing in New York City. And I was like, you're in a freaking RV selling insurance. Like why, 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 why don't you just drive to some other city where, you know, it's a little bit like more affordable. Like, why wouldn't you do You don't have to be in New York City to make phone calls like that. And I, I actually brought up, you know, there was a house for sale up the street from me for like $180,000. And I'm like, okay, you might not like Brainerd. It might not be your place. Um, but, you know, what are you getting in New York City that you're living in an RV, uh, you know, barely scraping by that you would be missing out if you went to Philadelphia or if you went to uh, Akron, Ohio, or Cleveland, or, you know, and what I get in response is, oh, it's the New York scene. It's the clubs and the restaurants and the, you know, the, the shopping and the plays. And, and my response is, how much of that are you doing if, <laughs> if you can't afford, you know, to live there? Like, I, I yeah. don't know. That actually makes me think about kind of this idea that I've been kicking around and it's not really totally thought out, but it does seem like there's this sense of people being more of a consumer of a city rather than like a citizen or stakeholder, like rather than being in a place because you want to have not not necessarily uh, ownership in the sense of like ownership of property and whatnot, but ownership of a place like, you know, engagement and the, the activities of a place. It seems like there are kind of two camps where it's like people who are interested in that and then people who live in a place um, not to, you know, guide the place moving forward or be engaged in kind of the community activities, but rather like as a consumer, like you're here to, you know, go to the events and be in the scene and consume the offerings of the city, but you don't necessarily have like a long-term stake in what happens, you know, 30 years from now in that place. And that, that does seem like a fundamental cultural problem that we have. It does, but it leads me to this sense that if you, if you are Kansas City, the key to your future is not building, you know, investing in that fourth ring of suburbs that you're desperately trying to build. You know, your 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 future is not in doing some big, you know, rail project that is going to be like a signature thing that's going to kind of suck all the energy out of all the transportation investments you have. 
the best thing that you can do is just try to make your neighborhoods nice so people enjoy living there. You know, just improve like the quality of life for people who are there now. Yeah, where life currently is. <laughs> right. Because if you grew up in Kansas City, I mean, I'll, I'll say this. If you grew up in Kansas City or you grew up in Brainerd, Minnesota, you know, where I'm from, I, I gave this talk in Fargo not too long ago. I'm like, you've got a university here. There's all kinds of people who have chosen to go to school here. The idea that you would not have a really good shot at keeping those people instead of having those people graduate and then move to New York City or move to San Francisco or move to LA uh, or Portland, you know, they've already decided I'm okay with the winter. I'm okay with the cold. I'm okay with like everything else. Why don't you just find out what would make this place slightly less crappy for them, just a little more acceptable for them, and try to do that? Um, you know, in, in Kansas City, it's the same thing. Kansas City is a really nice place. It's a really nice city. Um, I don't like a lot of their policies. I don't like a lot of the ways they're investing their money. It makes me sad when I see the downtown sometimes the way it is and some of the neglect in some of the neighborhoods and low-hanging fruit just sitting there uninvested in. But to me, if, if Kansas City said, our goal is to, you know, we're going to help the housing crisis in New York City by keeping that, you know, whatever percent of our young people who automatically flee and go there from not thinking that this place is so crappy, um, Kansas City would be way better off. And I think New York would be way better off. Now, maybe I'm maybe I'm naive, you know. Well, well, that's funny because, you know, a lot of a lot of towns that I work with, like that is, they, I would say their politics are less um, intense as, you know, Kansas City is and just less complex as a government. But, but there is kind of this fundamental um, recognition that like, hey, we don't want our kids to leave here. We need to make it a better place to live. And I've actually been really inspired by by a lot of communities that do think about it that way and they they do recognize that they need to improve um, the communities that they have and that they can improve it in ways that are not necessarily you know bringing in substantial amounts of capital like it's really bottom up ways that that the community can be improved incrementally so that to me is is pretty inspiring and I I do think that's that's important is to kind of foster that that sense of ownership over a place and, you know, for whatever reason, a lot of people don't really have that desire, or at least I guess as someone in my twenties, you know, a lot of people that, that I know, you know, they don't have that kind of sense of dedication to a place and maybe that'll change as, as they get older. And I'm just weird. Cause I'm a, I'm an urban planner. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the story of America as we tell it in nostalgic conservative circles, is this story of opportunity, right? People seeking opportunity came to this country. People seeking opportunity migrated around this country. They made investments. They, you know, everything from why the Dust Bowl led to mass migration to, you know, the, the old idea of manifest destiny. It was this idea that people were seeking opportunity. I... I heard Andres Tuani give a speech. It was probably like five or six years ago now. It was when we were in Detroit for CNU. And he said, you know, I, he said, and I'm going to paraphrase him and this is going to be unfair. Uh, but he said something of the fact that he's kind of disappointed in young people today. He's like, why are they all moving to New York? Why, why aren't they moving to Detroit? Look at this place. It, it is just 
overflowing with opportunity. Anybody who comes here, you don't have to have very much. You can get started. You can actually work a job and buy a house and fix that house up and have it be worth more than it is. You can work with your neighbors together in a neighborhood and have the culmination of your work be better than the sum of the effort you put in. That there's a chance to like really build something here. You can um, start a business. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you yeah, know, in Kansas City, I do feel like they really pump up the small businesses, and in a way that if you go to a giant city, it's going to be a lot harder to get recognition to, and to actually establish yourself in that economy. It, I, it seems like there are so many places where opportunity is. It's like ready for anyone who wants to do something interesting. And a lot of people, a lot of places are dying for someone to come and do something interesting. Like they want people to do cool things and make their city cool. Um, so I, I agree with Andres in that sense that, that there is kind of this, this issue where, you know, we feel like we, we have to go to New York or San Francisco or LA um, and, you know, Denver, these kind of like big booming cities, um, and rather than kind of establishing something in our own place where we're at, like it's not good enough and we need it now. <laughs> well, and I don't, I, I mean, I think getting back to the idea of, you know, building a new city in terms of like, this is how we're going to solve housing inequalities and, and housing price unaffordability in a functioning marketplace. The idea that price would equilibrate over time with desirability and opportunity and all these other factors, um, that theory, I think, is, is a great theory. And I think in many realms, it's really sound. The fact that it doesn't work out that way with housing, and it clearly doesn't work out that way with housing, to me, suggests more than just you know, the, the, the zoning is bad or, you know, neighborhood associations have too much power or, you know, we have too much bureaucracy in government. It, it really suggests something about the market feedback mechanism that exists in the housing market and how broken it is. And to me, I think the greatest irony of a place like New York is that the financialization of the U.S. housing market is wreaking havoc across the country today in particular. It's, it's destroying neighborhoods. It's destroying communities. It's creating all kinds of tension and anxiety. Um, that financialization is the thing that has driven the last 30 years of expansion and, and appreciation in New York City. If that goes away, if we somehow got the financialized part of our market instead of being 25, 30% of our economy to be something more like four or 5% of our economy where it should be. And we actually had a housing market that responded locally. It would completely gut the demand side of the equation in New York City. And so New York City is in a sense has experienced for many, many years what everybody else is experiencing now, but it's a byproduct of the financialization, it's its like this wicked feedback loop that they've created that they both benefit and suffer from simultaneously that now we're all experiencing as well. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. 
Before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been listening to, reading, watching, anything that that we've been up to these days. So Chuck, I'm going to throw it to you. What have you been up to? You know what? I forgot about the down zone. And so I did not bring anything (laughs) here today. This is why you're getting demoted. (laughs) I'm failing. Um, well, let me let me just say this, and I I don't want to I don't want to come across the wrong way. I was invited um, last year and declined, and then was kind of invited again this year, and 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 encouraged by some friends of mine to do this program through my church, which is you know you and I are recording this on Good Friday, Easter will be Sunday. This will episode will come out a few days later. It's basically a ninety day period of kind of preparation for Easter. Uh, things like fasting and not eating between meals and not eating any desserts. I haven't had a dessert for <laughs> a long time. You know, exercise, uh, doing readings and prayer and all this stuff. And it's been a really um, super intense program. It's designed to be a super intense program, but it's one that you do with other people. And we have these weekly meetings and, and it's, it's, it's been very supportive. And I, I get here now today, we're on day 89 of 90 and yeah, just have a very good feeling about my life, about where I'm at, about, about, you know, approaching Easter and approaching spring and approaching the rest of the year. And I guess my reading has kind of fallen off because one of the things in this program is an, is an hour of prayer a day. And then uh, three hours of exercise a week, and there's a there's a bunch of stuff that have kind of squeezed out my normal routine. But you know, I've no TV, no movies, no social media on you know on your phone. Like I've found, I'm not reading as much, but I found that I'm doing other things that have provided me a lot of value. Um, so I feel really good. But next week I'll be back to books and. Uh, Maybe even a Reese's peanut butter cup <laughs> or a bowl of ice cream. <laughs> yes, Mountain Dew with sugar in it, right? <laughs> yeah, a little bit of uh, kickstart in my Mountain Dew uh, once again. Although I lost 15 pounds during this 90 days, and so maybe I will not embrace all the uh, all the sugar sweets I once did. But yeah, we'll maybe that's what I need to do. That sounds great. <laughs> you know, I actually feel like. I feel more healthy than I've felt in a really long time. And I started like doing this like thing called it's like hit it's high intensity interval training types of type of workouts. And I, I do this because I personally feel so tired at the end of the day that I really feel like I don't have the energy to direct my own uh, exercise. Um, and I'd rather just have someone yell at me <laughs> during it. So I've been doing that for like six months now and I, I'm actually using weights and getting wow. stronger. Yeah. Well, I told goal. you when we got, I told you when we got on here, I said, Oh, Abby, you look beautiful. And I, I, I think I can say that. I think we're friends enough where I can yes, say we're that. Friends and enough. You know, yeah. Cause you just kind of are like glowing and just look very nice and you know, well, you feel maybe, more fit. Yeah, maybe it's because I feel more fit because, you know, my my goal in this is to eventually do a pull-up, which I have never ah. done in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done a pull-up, um, not yeah. even close, actually. I was mm-hmm. like the kid in gym class where they would like 
have me just hold hang. it. Yeah. yeah, just hang. How long can just you hang? hang? Yeah, they would have me do that because I don't know why, but I just legitimately could never do it. So mm-hmm. for the first time, I'm actually you know, getting some arm strength and learning how to. That's a good out, goal. So. <laughs> That's a really good goal. I The Marines have to do pull-ups, but in the army, we never did. So I, I never got to be good at pull-ups, but pull-ups um, are easier when you're really light. Like, you know, I'm six foot tall. And when I joined the army, I weighed 123. I weighed 204 right now. So Today, I would be lifting like 80 pounds more than I was back then. And back then, I could do pull-ups like all day because you were not lifting. I didn't have a lot of arm strength, but you were not lifting all that much. And now, uh, pull-ups are really hard. Yeah. I mean, it's just – I don't know why, but my my arms literally just won't – they just won't budge and and do it, and I haven't tried it, you know, in in probably a couple of months. So I'm trying yeah. to build up that strength. But there's definitely okay. times where I'm doing things in the class that I'm like, I'm like, I don't think I have that muscle actually. <laughs> like I can't do something uh, completely. Are you trying to do? Just, are you trying to do a pull up like where you do like a bicep pull up, or are you trying to do like a tricep pull up? Like, a, uh, is you, it you the front? Fl- yeah, tricep front. Yeah. yeah. Those, I I actually think those are harder, but maybe for women it's not as hard. I don't know. I don't know which one is harder. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's it's weird because like my husband can just do them, which I think yeah. is really unfair. <laughs> yeah, my wife and I will go to the YMCA and do these courses together, and I can do the the arm things really well and the leg stuff really well. And she's she's in really good shape. She does this much more diligently than me. But then when we get to sit ups, oh my gosh. I I like could do like 10 sit-ups and I'm done. Like I just really? don't like, oh yeah, no, it doesn't. And she explained to me, she's like, women have like stronger abdomen. So when you work out, my abdomen responds quicker than yours. And she can just do sit-ups like all day. Yeah, me too. I can do yeah, sit-ups no, all I, day. I I do like 10 and I'm going to die. Yeah, it I, doesn't work. From biking, I do have very strong legs. Um, and from, from uh you know, I, I tore my ACL and had to do mm. like physical therapy for oh, forever. Sure, sure. So yeah. So I actually have really strong legs. I just, my mm. upper body is, is not, is not doing very good, but it's doing okay. better. Well, you yeah. and I will have to, we should, I think we should have a challenge here now. I'll figure yeah. out something <laughs> and uh, you have to do a pull up and I will have to do like, like a hundred or something. 25. A yeah. hundred. <laughs> So in, okay. in the uh, when I was 17 in the army, so this was like the highest, you had to do 52 sit-ups in two minutes. And I could do it, but I could just barely do it. Like yeah, that, was a, that would be pretty so tough. A hundred sit-ups, I don't think I could, I don't think at my, at my prime I could do that. You know, so, part of this thing that I'm doing also involves like the rower, which is such a weird yeah. thing to me. And I feel like uh, I can row all day, but I also feel like I'm doing it wrong because <laughs> that's possible. Because it feel should like hurt. It's not that hard. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well. All right. Well. Uh, all right. Thank you, again, Chuck. It's good to talk to you. And thanks it's nice everyone. To see you. And thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you, Chuck. Bye. Let me show you what